Hello and welcome to episode 157 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I'm doing well. The weather has turned rainy, but it, it is no longer freezing. So we've exited third winter and I believe we've entered mud season here in Chicago. Oh, that's great. Here in New York, we're probably one day behind you as usual. So I look forward exactly. to mud tomorrow. Yes. We're we're sending it your way as Thank as you. we like to do. It's it's my pleasure. It's uh it's what brings me. It's the me least joy. you could do. It is literally the least I could do, which is which is about you know, about where I'm at today. How are you doing? Better than you by the sounds of it. <laughs> it's it's been one of those days where where I bounced around from meeting to meeting today before the podcast and then kind of thought it was like collecting my thoughts and I was like, well, what what just happened? Well, this is hopefully going to be the best meeting you have today. Talking with you is always the highlight of my day. See? There we go. Best meeting of the day already. <laughs> We've got a, a good show, mostly updates and a bit of new stuff. A couple things did in fact happen this week that are new, but mostly uh, updates on things we've talked about over the last couple weeks. And I guess we'll begin with an update on the China Eastern Airlines 737 that crashed in China. Both the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder have been recovered. Both of those if I'm not mistaken, both the the CVR and FDR had separated from their housing. So the data recorders are crash resistant, hopefully crash proof. Memory modules are just basically this hardened steel canister and it's attached to a base plate that contains, among other things, an emergency locator beacon if indeed the, the aircraft crashes into the water that activates and then hopefully the recorders can be found independently of the the rest of the aircraft if if need be both recorders in this case were separated from their their base plates and their locator beacons which wouldn't have activated in any case here because this this was a, a crash into into terrain but the the interesting thing is that the flight data recorder was recovered under i think a few meters of mud so they they really had to Really had to dig for it, but but they've both been recovered now. And if I if I understand correctly, the the translated press conference that the the Chinese investigators gave, both are damaged, but they're hopeful that the the memory modules can in fact be restored and, and then the data pulled off. Yeah, hopefully that's the case. Remember anything produced recently. Any any late model aircraft is using solid state storage media. So th there's no tape inside this. There's really nothing mechanical. It's all electronic, uh, probably just like your, your laptop at home, just flash memory. So hopefully that has survived without much of an issue. And if there was any damage to it, it could be repaired and all the, the data recovered. But it is interesting that this is yet another case where the actual data unit of the so-called black boxes detached from the base. Uh, thankfully, they were able to find it, even though, like you said, Ian, it was several meters under mud. But maybe it's time the industry starts to take another look at the design of these things, since this seems to be a repeating theme where, thankfully, the data cylinder thing is found almost every time. But I feel like technology has advanced to the point where maybe it's time to get a little more creative with how these things are, are are put together and how they can call out to the rest of the world when they actually do get activated. 
Yeah, that, that's always an interesting thing that that's always one of the things that I found interesting about the discussion around black boxes is because when between between the disappearance of MH370, it taking years to find Air France 447, the the discussion about what technology is available to to ensure that you know the the crash protected memory is is found and found quickly in in the event of an incident shifted kind of to well why don't we just stream everything you know just everything that the black box records just just stream it and and we'll go from there and for a host of reasons not the least of which is that that is a ton of data and and streaming it creates its own set of problems you always want to have a, a physical backup of of that data and you know with good reason but why not create a, a crash protected beacon as well that that activates regardless of whether or not the aircraft enters water like a, a g meter or something like that i mean if if it experiences a shock it activates yeah and the streaming thing obviously there's a lot of cost associated with that to have every aircraft that has satellite or, or air to ground connectivity constantly streaming its uh, flight data recorder data is it's just a lot that that's too much there have been discussions about having certain upset events triggering a data upload or a real time streaming but in this case i feel like that wouldn't even have worked because the the incident occurred so abruptly so suddenly that I don't think there would have been any time to upload anything. The aircraft went into to such a, a steep descent so quickly, it would have almost immediately broken whatever satellite connectivity it, it had just because of the, the angle of the aircraft. There would have been no, no connection at that point. But there, there is possibility in the future. Airbus is, I think, with the A350 program, was looking for at deployable black boxes where if, there, where if there is some traumatic incident, it will basically eject the black boxes out of the rear of the aircraft. I, I think there are some military aircraft that already do this, but the A350 does not yet do this, but it has been on the roadmap for a number of years now. Yeah. And, and which is not to say that the the existing crash protected memory recorders don't do a very good job at helping investigators determine the cause of an accident. No question about that. There's always room for improvement. But I I, I think it's worth mentioning that they're really good already. Yes, they are they are excellent and and I don't have stats in front of me, but I'm sure if I did they would say that the the recovery rate of the data from these is astronomically high. When it comes to sparing no expense, and when we talked about, we talked with Champagne about this last April when when he was on the show, he, he talked about you know the lengths that they will go through to protect those recorders, and then work to get even a scrap of data off of the recorders. They'll spare no expense and go all lengths to to get anything off of those so that they can understand what has happened. So yeah, it, exactly. They, they'll they'll get something off of it. We we hope. So far, it has just been. Chinese investigators on site. The NTSB, which would normally launch a go team immediately, immediately, uh, if not maybe one day after after a crash, in in normal times, that has been delayed. Their departure has been delayed and and slowed by visa issues and COVID protocols. 
the NTSB said this week that they have received their visas and are prepared to travel. There is an Air China A330 at Dulles in Washington ready to go. I assume whenever they work out exactly what the protocols are going to be for their departure. And then the the NTSB team will be traveling to China to, to join the investigation. There are also approvals for the Boeing representatives and the representatives from CFM, the engine manufacturers that will be traveling to China, though we don't have their travel. It's not a schedule, but uh, their travel details available at this point. Both CBR and FDR found NTSB and, and other parties to the investigation on their way or soon to be on their way by the time the, the podcast comes out on Friday. So hopefully, there's a, uh, a good progress on the investigation. And according to the, again, translated version of the, the briefing that, that I saw, by the end of April, we'll, we'll be looking – within the first month, we'll be looking for a preliminary report. Uh, so hopefully, we'll know more then. Yeah. I think what I find most interesting about this whole investigative process to this point is that China actually sent an Air China A330 to Dulles to pick up the investigators. It's a very strange move. That's obviously not something that's really happen, doesn't really happen in normal times. So the NTSB can't just take one of its own aircraft over to China. They actually had to dispatch out an aircraft to Dulles where I assume there is a crew sitting in isolation somewhere waiting for the moment's notice to take the investigators back to China. Just a, a very interesting point to me that that the NTSB just can't take uh, its own aircraft or charter its own aircraft to get out there, that China dispatched an aircraft solely for this purpose. Yeah. And, and the, the aircraft landed in Washington on the 26th of March. So it's been there already for a few days. It's been there. And I'm sure the, the poor crew has been sitting in a hotel room in isolation the entire time. I, I can't imagine them being allowed to do anything else to the very strict COVID protocols. Right, right. So they're they're just can can we can we go home now? I mean, <laughs> at this point, I, I guess they've they've been there quite some time. I, uh, I've been so. to the Dulles Airport Marriott before, and I would be uh, ready to go home if I were them. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's move our attention to to Russia now. March twenty eighth, so Monday, was the deadline as far as the EU is concerned for the return of aircraft that were impacted by sanctions. Well, they so tried. It didn't quite work out. Again, when we first had this conversation, we, we had this conversation in the context that international law is a great thing until someone decides not to follow it. And then there aren't really any consequences. No, there's no at least, at, at, least at least initial consequences. I mean, there could it's be- It's not like we can apply additional sanctions at this point because I'm pretty sure we already did that. Right. I mean, you, you, can't, send, you can't send Aeroflot a bill and, and get paid for, for all of the, the aircraft that they've decided to keep. There very well may be consequences and, and certainly unforeseen consequences at this point down the line as far as Russian aviation is concerned because of this. But at the moment, there's not really much anyone can do beyond getting the aircraft back that they can get back and working 
with their insurance companies, Lester's that is working with their insurance companies, and, and I, what I can only assume is a a very large army of lawyers to try and get whatever money they can. So a few of the hundreds of aircraft have been returned. Fewer than 100 of 800 aircraft have been returned. Aircap announced today that they've recovered 22 of 135 of their aircraft. 5% of their total fleet value remains in Russia. And they filed a $3.5 billion insurance claim today as part of that kind of dealing with the the fallout of, of not getting their aircraft back. So it's just it boggles my mind how much planes cost. I mean, how long have we been doing this? We've been doing this for a decade. It still boggles my mind how much planes cost. Yeah, and I'm sure as a part of this insurance claim, uh, the the lessors and the insurance companies will be going back and forth for years debating just what the actual value of these lost aircraft is because they're kind of going to have to make it up as they go, I guess. It, there's never been an event where hundreds and hundreds of aircraft have suddenly just become written off all at once. So the, the insurance companies are, are going to want to pay as little as possible while the, while the leasing companies are going to want to get their largest possible value for these aircraft. So it's going to be, I'm sure, a, a court battle for years to come. Maybe the aircraft will come back before the, the claims are even settled. Who knows? I mean, wouldn't that just be a thing? That would be nice, <laughs> and and we just just kidding. We're 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 flying in. I don't think that's going to happen. No. But the lessors making insurance claims with this amount of money, we've got to be talking reinsurance as well. So that gets a whole nother level, and then finding a value for what you know the the claims. I, I can't even imagine how complicated that process is. But what's what's I think you know worth remembering is that all of these lessors have said. It's it's a lot of money, but it's not a huge chunk of our business. Yeah, look at AirCap and you know five percent of their total fleet value. It's a ton it of money. sucks, but it will not put any of these leasing companies out of business at this point. Right, they've all pretty much said we're going to have to take a long, hard look to see if we ever do business in Russia again. So when all is said and done, and the West comes back to Russia, which I'm sure will happen at some point, uh, they'll definitely go back. I, I don't see any two ways about it. If there's money to be made there, they will go back. Yeah, I, I think the structure of the deals are going to look a lot different. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, That's I, fair. If, if they, yeah, if they ever go, but the, the structure of the deals are going to look a lot different. A few of the planes that did did make it out, there, there's still quite a few aircraft in Istanbul. One of them left today, a Rossiya A319 owned by Avalon flew out to Shannon, Shannon just today. And late last week, an Airbridge Cargo 747-8F made uh, the journey from Hong Kong to sunny San Bernardino, California, where hey, it sits in that's storage. nice. So yeah, that, that one had been in Hong Kong for a while and then flew out. So it, it had arrived in Hong Kong on the 1st of March Yeah, and, and then there, had sat for about a month. There are... A few more aircraft in Istanbul right now. I see at least three Norwind airline aircraft, a pair of A33200s and a 738. So there are also an SAS A330. What, they're 
37 days ago, unrelated, but interesting. Oh, there's, <laughs> there's a couple more Norwin. There's a 738, yep. an, an A33300, another 738, another 738. So there's, there are a good number of uh, grounded aircraft belonging to Russian airlines, specifically Norwind, it seems like. I'm, I'm assuming waiting for somebody to whisk them away to another country. One of the one of the tiny insignificant ironies in this is that there's a Nordwind 737 that was leased to Ukraine International Airlines. And Nordwind took it after it came off lease with Ukraine months, if not years ago, and never fully repainted it. So it's in kind of a hybrid livery. And and I haven't been able to remember which registration it was to see if they've done anything with that or if they've just left that one. Purely based on you know what what the the livery that the aircraft is is wearing, but there's some interesting Nordwind aircraft flying around. So a thing that we talked about a few episodes ago when we had John Oster on the show was the fact that these fleets that are still in Russia will most likely, or more likely than not, have to follow a, a kind of an Iranian model of subsistence farming other aircraft for parts. Assuming that they can't find a way around it, they have only have a, a finite number of parts that they can get because they can't get new spare parts. As part of that, Pobeda is announcing that they're drawing down their fleet because they cannot get spare parts. So they're going to shrink their fleet so that they have other aircraft that they can start pulling parts from. That happened a lot faster than I thought it would. Yeah, down from 41 to 25 aircraft. And I'm sure some of that is due to the fact that they can't operate anything internationally. So they need far fewer aircraft to operate a purely domestic operation than international. But it's an interesting combination that they just don't need aircraft and they need those grounded aircraft to keep the aircraft they do need in service. Yeah. And and then so if if, the, if this is happening already, I mean, how much longer can can the airlines kind of continue to operate as many aircraft as they do? Because the the point that some some folks have made to me is that Iran's been doing this for 40, 40 years. Okay, but it's a little different. It's it's a it's a little di- the scale is is what's so different it, to it's me. not just the scale it's also the type of aircraft keeping a, a tu-154 operating is, is a matter of keeping mechanical parts sound and, and almost making new parts if they fail and you don't have any replacements with, with modern aircraft there i think you said before ian these are basically computers that fly if a, a computer breaks you can't really just make a new one or if a, a high-tech component a very very precise, very complex, electronically controlled mechanical part breaks. You can't just make a new one or, or hammer it back into place. It's a lot more of a modern problem than Iran had to deal with in decades past, which I'm sure they're dealing with now. But it, it's it's similar, but very different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, chal- the idea is the same. The actual challenges are significantly different, at, at least at, at some point. I mean, there are certain certain aircraft within the Russian fleet or operated by Russian airlines where finding a piece of metal and, and hitting it, that might solve the problem for a while. But yeah, with a lot of these aircraft, especially with a lot of their new aircraft and especially the wide body aircraft that they've been operating, that, that becomes a, a much, much bigger challenge. And uh, 
a much more different challenge. Yeah, you can try hitting the flight control computer with a piece of metal. It might work, but probably not going to work well. <laughs> probably probably not going to work. I don't think we need to have a uh, an aircraft mechanic on the program to tell us that hitting a computer won't I mean, fix it. I mean, it might make you feel better. Percussive maintenance yeah. is definitely a thing, but it has limited return. <laughs> limited, I like that. Limited return. So the last part of the Russian aviation situation that we wanted to talk about this week was what airlines are actually doing with these aircraft that they're still operating. So part of this is the I don't know if it's additional sanctions, but more specific sanctions that the US Commerce Department levied against, I think it was 105 or so aircraft that that aren't supposed to be allowed to operate internationally at all. There, some of them still are. Aircraft have been moved from the mostly Bermudan registry to the Russian registry as as part of, I guess, Russia's attempt to to make it uh, to make it. I don't. I don't even know what uh, attempt to make it legitimate, at least in, in their eyes. But Aeroflot and, and Rosia are setting up an international hub in in Sochi, which I think is a an interesting move to use basically the the Russian owned aircraft out of Sochi to fly to international destinations to to the south of south and southeast of Russia. Yeah, this was bound to happen. So basically, the Aeroflot starting in the coming weeks, I think, is going to operate the, the Sukhoi Superjet 100 to seven destinations, Armenia, Egypt, Israel, Kazakhstan, Turkey, and Uzbekistan, basically to navigate around these sanctions, but still be able to reach these destinations. Since the, the, the Superjet doesn't have the, the greatest of range, it's not a long haul aircraft, it wasn't designed to do that. So they need to position it as far south in the Russian territory as possible to get to places like Israel or Turkey. But they have to use an aircraft that basically nobody in their right mind would want to impound. Nobody wants a Superjet 100. Nobody wanted that before this whole thing. And also, they will not be operated by Aeroflot. They will be operated by Russia as they were recently transferred from Aeroflot. So that may just be a matter of circumstances that these will not actually be operated by Aeroflot proper, but one of its subsidiaries. But very, very interesting. They actually start on uh, April 7th, so coming up uh, in the next week. Right in time for the summer season or, or spring spring season. Yeah, there are a lot of flights to tourist destinations in Turkey, 14 to to some destinations that are, are definitely tourist heavy, 19 a week to Istanbul. So they are uh, they're definitely operating as much as they can wherever they can with this aircraft that was uh, not really wanted by anyone else. I mean, which is really interesting because one of the things that that came out this week was the the folks at, at European aviation authorities calling out Turkey and being like, hey, I thought we were trying to have a united front here. Russia is flying to Turkey a lot. What's going on here, guys? Was was the gist of the the complaint that they levied. And I think a, a worthwhile question to ask, but obviously Turkey has decided that Russian aircraft and and flights by Russian airlines are are still very welcome. Yeah, not great, but there's nothing anyone could do about these super jets coming in, I guess. It's a, a last resort. I'm sure nobody wants to do that, but it's what they can do. Jason, may, perhaps you can explain exactly what happened a little bit better than I can, what happened to Russian aviation authorities this week. 
Well, apparently they were hacked quite brutally, it seems. I haven't seen any any uh, confirmation of this today, but apparently the hacktivist group Anonymous went to town on the Russian aviation authorities and, and wiped out pretty much everything, multiple terabytes worth of data that for some reason they claim was not backed up at all. So at this point, pretty much all the back-end paperwork that you would see done by the, the government agencies in Russia is being done by hand. So uh, it's not going to stop them from re-registering an aircraft that may have been registered in Bermuda uh, and registering it under uh, a uh, Russian registration, but it will slow down the act of stealing that aircraft, which is fine, I guess. And and I'm sure and I'm sure this dramatically increases confidence in the safety of the Russian aviation. Oh, yeah. Authority and flying in Russia at the moment. Yeah, I would probably not want to do that. No, I, I definitely don't want to do that. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not even going to couch that in, in probabilistic terms. Absolutely not. Yeah, I. It, no backups. That's what we're told. It doesn't mean that's actually true, or maybe they're working to restore the backups. But I don't know. Sucks, but whatever. Okay. Fair yep. enough. Let's mm-hmm. move on to what my show notes have declared is the Latam nose gear twisty thingy. Ah, that's a technical term. Explain, good sir. Explain. Well, every now and then, it, it is not. I guess it is a rare occurrence, but not unheard of. There is an incident within an Airbus aircraft. It's not even just the A320 series. I, I've personally seen this happen with the A330, where uh, the nose gear will twist 90 degrees, which um, if you've ever looked at a, a tire, um, you, you generally don't want that, especially when you're landing. In this case, yesterday, so that would have been Tuesday the 29th, a Latam Columbia A320, I believe, Correct. had such an incident in Medellin where it took off. It probably um, displayed an unsafe gear indication to the pilots who circled around for 45 minutes and, and came into land. And we've seen this play out before, most famously with JetBlue at LAX, I think in 2005, it was famously broadcast on live TV as the passengers on board that aircraft watching live TV watch their own emergency landing. Ain't life grand. Yeah, yeah, that one one is a, a full circle of just madness. But in this case, I found it particularly interesting that, yes, the aircraft landed fine. It made, there was a great video. There was um, a picture of the, uh, once again, of the nose gear ground down from the friction to be only half a wheel. Right. But in this case, I spotted that the uh, the rat was deployed, and that's the, the ram air turbine, which I, I hadn't seen in any similar incidents. And the, the rat, as it's known, is a little propeller that's deployed from the belly of the aircraft to provide very minimal basic electrical and some hydraulic support to the aircraft in cases an electrical failure of some sort. And I I was wondering, why did this happen? I I haven't seen this happen in similar incidents. And and, uh, I tweeted it out and I got a lot of incorrect responses, a lot of assumptions, but eventually the answer became clear in that the QRH, basically the, the 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 handbook that the pilots refer to when they are troubleshooting an incident in this case, says if you have an unsafe nose gear indication, do not use the reversers, keep the nose up after touchdown, keep the nose off the runway by use of the elevator, then lower the nose to the runway before elevator control is lost, apply brakes smoothly before nose impact, all engine masters off. So in this case where there's an issue with the nose gear that Airbus actually 
dictates that you are to turn off power to the engines. And there is a particular sequence of events on the A320 where if electrical power from both engines is lost and the aircraft has an airspeed over 100 knots, the ram air turbine actually deploys automatically, which is very interesting and makes sense. So I guess in all other incidents that I've seen like this, the pilots turned off power from the engines under 100 knots. And in this case, it must have been just over 100 knots. And it's just nice to find out very logical reasons for why a thing happened rather than just guessing. But in this case, it was all the answers were there. You just have to know where to look. You just have to sit through the the piles of um, unhelpfulness. Exactly. And there's a lot of unhelpfulness, a lot of incorrect answers (laughs) out there on Twitter. But it was very interesting. It also jives with the data on Flight Radar 24 that the data, when when they were taking off, there is ground data available. You can see them taxing out. But when they're landing, the data suddenly cuts out at uh, 156 knots at just the just about the threshold of the runway. So I'm guessing maybe that's right about where they cut off the engines and that's where electrical power was lost. And then the ram air turbine deployed automatically. So there you go. Things work how they're supposed to work. I'm very thankful for you running that down and, and me not having to. So I, I appreciate you doing that. And I learned something today about the Airbus A320. And it's always a great day when you learn something. That's right. This so, is this is one of those things where like I love that little stuff. Right. So thank you to the, uh, the 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 aviation hive mind on Twitter for eventually providing the correct information. <laughs> it eventually gets there. I, I find uh, when, when you ask a question, you you eventually get someone who who can tell you no. All of those other people are wrong, and and here's here's substantial proof that this is the answer rather than, well, it seems like, because I feel like a lot of the things, well, no, and, 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 and you're like, okay, well, hold on. Do, do you have any evidence to support that? Or are you just you know saying things? So in this case, I'm glad it all floated to the surface. And, and I'm also very glad that this was like the other 90 degree gear turn incidents where, where everyone just Got off the aircraft and and walked away. Uh, it would be great if if that stopped happening, though. Yeah, but it just yet again another another event that proves that landing gear is probably some of the absolute strongest anything's out there. Like it is yep. literally a wheel plopped down at 150 knots in the wrong direction. And it just grinds down, does its thing, says, okay, fix me up and we'll, we'll be on our way. <laughs> yeah, tow, tow me over to the hangar, give me a new one and we'll, we'll, go, we'll go from here. So the A350 of uh, Qatar are – we've reached I, I guess a, a new phase in the acrimony between Airbus and Qatar Airways where Qatar is now saying that the – the aircraft could explode. I, I, I catch mean, fire. Like, yeah, <laughs> bad com- things could bad happen. Things will happen. But in this case, Bloomberg says, um, quoting, in documents made to the public Tuesday, Qatar Airways said paint layers on large parts of affected A350s have been so badly damaged that wind and pollutants such as salt or hydraulic fluids can penetrate through the skin and damage the lightning protection of the aircraft. That raises particular concern on the wings where the fuel tanks are located. So really, it seems like nothing new 
has been revealed here. But this is still that the 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 lightning protection of the aircraft is compromised, or at least that's what uh, Qatar is implying here, and that they're now saying, well, it could mean that the aircraft will explode. Not great. No, not great, but I, I, I'm not sure how large of a grain of salt we're supposed to take these particular claims from from Qatar. Well, if that uh, grain of salt is too small, it might penetrate the the skin. That's, of these that's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. So not it, not too small. It seems like a bit of grandstanding here, but um, it, is def- it definitely ups the ante when an airline is saying our aircraft are going to blow up if you don't fix this issue. Because that's basically what they're saying here. Yeah, and and what is it? Last week, I think the the number of aircraft, the number of A three fifty Qatar Airways A three fifties that are grounded went went up. But so far, while we've seen other airlines say yes, there's a problem. Yes, we're working with Airbus to resolve the problem. Qatar Airways is still, as far as I know, the only airline to have grounded the aircraft. And I guess is it, you know, and we talked about this before again. How much is it the environment in which these aircraft are being stored? How much is it, you know, the the environment in which they they operate? And then how much is this, like you mentioned, grandstanding? Because we are in the midst of a legal battle, so how are they going back and forth? Is this a court of public opinion at this point? It, it's unclear to me what the what the end game is here, uh, because Airbus keeps saying well, we keep offering to fix it, and they keep saying no. And Qatar says, "Well, no, you're not offering to fix it; you're offering to patch it, which is different." And so I, I guess they just want to continue fighting until they're both happy or both angry. I. It's unclear to me what's happening here. I don't know. All I know is that this has resulted in Qatar bringing back the uh, A380. So that's a win. All right then. I mean, for passengers, for passengers, and for me, maybe, personally, maybe not for the, the A380. Yeah, yeah. For you, for you personally. Fair enough. Speaking of A380s, Airbus's A380, one of the the test aircraft, flew for the first time on one hundred percent. 100% SAF. So this was uh, from from Total Energies, a hydro-processed esters and fatty acids. So basically used cooking oil in France was then pumped into, into the A380. And they went 100% on, on one of the engines and spent three hours up in the air from Toulouse. And now they're, they're moving forward with another Kind of SAF test because Airbus has committed itself to basically using SAF as as the biggest bridge they can find to to getting to whatever comes next. And in Airbus case, they they say it's hydrogen, but uh, an interesting test nonetheless, and a hundred percent of uh, sustainable aviation fuel. So uh, it continues. Two things here: it, it's good that this was tested using. I would say the correct sustainable aviation fuel where it's used cooking oil and and scraps of other things and not purposely grown feedstock basically you know like ethanol or, or growing crops specifically to turn into and I'm air quoting here sustainable aviation fuel so this is the right kind of SAFs and secondly 
they're going to fly it to Nice. I was just in Nice. If they could have done this two weeks ago, that would have made me very happy. <laughs> Next time, you need to you need to send an email to Airbus that says, "I'm going to be around. Do you have anything planned?" That would have and, been and maybe great. they could have moved it up. So now, now you know for next time. The close of the show comes to us from Cathay Pacific, which is is trying to to get back on track. Cathay Pacific has just had a terrible, terrible, terrible time throughout the pandemic as as an airline that relies a hundred and ten percent, hundred and twenty percent on connecting traffic or long haul international traffic and, and a lot of connecting traffic without a domestic market. They have had all sorts of trouble because of their their routing, their ability to operate flights to Hong Kong, their ability to operate flights from Hong Kong, their pilot cadre of pilots has been affected. So they, they've just not been in good shape. And the kind of next step as far as things that can go wrong, will go wrong for Cathay is that they now have to route their flights around Russian airspace. And so the flight from New York to to Hong Kong, they're going to start taking advantage of the jet stream over the Atlantic and then come down through Europe and Asia to to get to Hong Kong. This would become, depending on the day, one of the longest flights, uh, if not the longest flight in the world based on actual track mileage, depending on how they choose to route the flight. So, so a, a flight from JFK to, to Hong Kong ends up taking possibly up to 19 hours. Okay. That is far, far too many hours if you happen to be economy on an aircraft. But I think we talked about this last week. Can you tell me, Ian, what are the top three longest flights in the world? Do they all happen to go to New York now? Um, so maybe. It depends the on- is maybe. Maybe, 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 maybe. So you've got the two- if, So are we including- Let me ask you, let me ask you a very touchy- touchy question. Is Newark, New York? No, the answer is Newark. No. Okay. So the answer is no. But, the answer is no. But for the purposes of no. this, let's go with yes. <laughs> okay. So so <laughs> with with Cafe's proposed routing, they haven't done it yet, but with the new proposed routing, the top three would be out of the, the New York Metroplex area or what, what IATA considers New York. Let, let's go with that. Let's go well, with that. IATA definition. also calls Stewart Airport like a billion miles north of the city of New York. So I'll, I'll allow it. I don't make the IATA rules. I just uh I just read the lists. But yeah, it would be it would be the uh the the top 3 would be uh Cathay and then Singapore's two flights. And then uh you would have when Air New Zealand launches, you would have four of the top 5. Yep, don't forget when Qantas starts up with Project Sunrise. Well, but I mean, they haven't even bought the planes yet, so I'm leaving well, they'll, that they'll one. They'll do I'm it saying, at some point. They'll do it at some point, and we can revisit the list, and and we can rise with the sun, and and all sorts of good fun stuff. But yeah, at this point, you're you're sitting you're sitting at the top of the list, good sir. Yeah, it's a uh, a lot of flights that I do not want to take in economy. No, no, I mean, and that's the thing. Singapore doesn't offer economy on on their regularly scheduled passenger flights. They have used some of the the regular A350s for the cargo aspect of it but I'm not sure if they've had you know enough people to to fill an economy cabin uh flying between Singapore and New York so I'm not, I'm not sure 
But in either case, I it's not something where I'm thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll take that flight. Nope. No, thank you. Maybe once. Maybe. 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 All right. <laughs> Before we go any further, let's call this an episode. This is, uh, let's see, episode 157. So if you've listened to this as your first episode or if it's your 157th episode, thank you so much for listening and we really appreciate it. If you're enjoying the show, go ahead and and leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at podcast at fr24.com. We are always keen for feedback. We read all of those and I owe quite a few listeners a response email. I apologize, but but we will get to those very quickly. Uh, unless you sent me a correction on how to pronounce something, then I have read it. I have processed it. I will not be uh, replying to you, but thank you. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you all so very much for listening. We love doing the podcast and and we love when we get feedback from from you all. This has been episode 157 of Avtalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.